U.S. Navy History, arriving. Welcome back to the U.S. Navy History Podcast. I am Dale, and I am joined by Christoph the XO. Hey there, Christoph. Hey there, Captain. Uh, good to have everybody back. So we are going to finish up our review of the battleships. How's that sound? You know, I that sounds just about right to me. That sounds perfect. All right, let's get underway. So last time we had just finished talking about World War One. So now that brings us to the interwar periods between World War One and World War Two. So for a, a number of years, Germany really just had no battleships at all. The armistice that Germany signed required that most of the high fleet that they had to be disarmed and interned in a neutral port. Now, because no real neutral port could be found, the ships just stayed in British custody in Scotland at Scapa Flow. The Treaty of Versailles said that the ships could should be handed over to the British. Instead, Germany was like, no, we're just going to scuttle them. And they did that just before this peace treaty was signed. That way, you know, they couldn't get in trouble for it. Pretty sneaky. Very sneaky. This You underestimate the sneakiness. Uh, the same treaty also limited the German Navy and prevented them from building or possessing any capital ships at all. What does that mean exactly when you say capital ship? Does that battleship specifically? Or what else could that be? Capital ships. They are defined as larger warships when compared to, you know, other warships in the fleet. They are generally a leading and or primary ship in the naval fleet. So it could be like an aircraft carrier nowadays, I imagine. Right. Uh, it's battleships, aircraft carriers, ballistic missile submarines can be counted into that as nowadays as well. Okay, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So, you know, boats to that of that nature. So the the interwar period also saw that the battleship was sub subjected to strict international limitations. And this was mostly due to prevent a expensive arms race. Now, you know, the 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 winners of World War 1, they were not limited by the Treaty of Versailles. But uh, many of the major naval powers were pretty much crippled after the war. So it really didn't matter. I imagine after the devastation and loss of life of the major players, they weren't as interested in uh, rebuilding capital ships or their fleet so much as just trying to get their country moving again. Depending on uh, how badly the, the war treated you, your country, right. your specific country. Now, uh, the United States was looking at everything. Of course, the United States was not affected as much as, you know, Europe, just because of how isolated we were. They, they really wanted to get the Washington Naval Treaty put into place because they were looking at uh, the UK and Japan were like, I see an arms race a brew, a brew in there. 
And since Japan and the UK were not limited by the Treaty of Versailles, they were like, yeah, we, we, we need to fix this. So this treaty limited the number and size of battleships that each major nation could possess. And it required Britain to accept partly with the U.S. and to abandon the British alliance with Japan. This treaty also was followed by a number of other naval treaties, which included the first Geneva Naval Conference, the first London Naval Treaty, the second Naval Geneva Conference, and lastly, the second Naval, second London Naval Treaty. And all of these treaties set limits on major warships, like the battleship. Now, of course, uh, all these treaties pretty much became obsolete September 1st, 1939. Do you know what happened then? If I recall, it's when Germany invaded Poland. World War II, you are correct, sir. Now, the treaty limitations meant that uh, fewer new battleships were, you know, built and launched between 1919 and 1939, and then then was built in 1905 to 1914. They also inhibited development uh, by imposing upper limits on the weight of ships. So designs like the British N3 class battleship and the American South Dakota class and the Japanese key class, all of, all of these, you know, were training to be really big with really big guns and really thick armor. They, because of these treaties, they never got off the drawing board. The designs that were built during this period were, free, were referred to as treaty battleships. I guess that's a polite way of saying, uh, yeah, these aren't really our best, but it's all we could do. Yeah. It's kind of like gasoline engines of the early 1980s. It's like, yeah, our performance isn't great, but... It's the best we could do. Yeah, but these treaty battleships, you know, they, they were the ones that started in, in World War II. And, but, you know, af after World War II started, a number of them pretty much did not survive World War II. Yeah. So in, at, so in 1914, that's when the British Admiral Percy Scott, he was like, you know, guys, the battleship is going to be pretty much obsolete here soon because of, you know, those flying machines. By the end of World War I, aircraft had successfully started being armed with torpedoes. So that's, you know... That's a game changer for sure. It is. In 1921, there was an Italian general and a air theorist, a guy named Giulio Duhat. He had done, he had written a influential tryst on strategic bombing that he called the command of the air. And he predicted air dominance over naval unit. That's interesting. I, I don't hear too much from Italian generals. So that's really something, and, and very spot on. I mean, I guess... If you're going to have the title of air theorist, being able to successfully make those claims and have them proven right is pretty substantial. 
the man knew what he was talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, ho hopefully if you uh, publish a book about it, you do. But, you know. Yeah. I I've read a panoply of books. Some of them missed the mark, we'll say. <laughs> <laughs> they, they should have been filed under fiction. Right. So that brings us to a guy named Billy Mitchell. He was general of the United States Army Air Corps. And in, 19, and in the 1920s, he believed that the air forces had rendered navies around the world obsolete. Just the entire navies. He actually testified in front of Congress that, quote, 1,000 bombardment airplanes could be built and operated for about the price of one battleship. And that a squadron of these bombers could sink a battleship, making for more efficient use of government funds. Now, this pissed off the Navy. Oh, yeah, I bet it did. But, you know, Mitchell was allowed to conduct a careful series of bombing tests alongside the Navy and Marine bombers. And in 1921, he bombed and sank a number of ships, including the, quote, unsinkable, which is never a good term to put in front of a ship. Absolutely not, yeah. Never call your ship unsinkable. But the unsinkable German World War I battleship, the SMS Ostfreichland, and the American pre-dreadnought Alabama. So Mitchell had required wartime conditions, but the ships that were sunk were obsolete, stationary, and defenseless. Well, and had no damage control whatsoever. Yeah, that's pretty... That, that seems like a skewed experiment. And, uh, I don't know, that, that it's still effective. I mean, no one will doubt, I think, at this point, how effective aircraft can be against naval vessels, but having no fire control or just... Yeah. Well, I mean, hitting a obsolete, stationary defenseless boat versus a fully manned boat that will be able to do damage control is not obsolete, is firing back, right, and is moving are two way different things. Mm -hmm. So when they sank the German battleship, they were actually violating an agreement that would have allowed Navy engineers to examine the effects of the munitions and Mitchell's airmen also disregarded the rules and sank the ship with within minutes in a coordinated attack and uh, the stunt made headlines Mitchell he was quoted as saying quote no surface vessel can exist wherever air forces acting from land bases are able to attack them that's interesting that he specified surface vessels I'm sure uh, there were a Quite a few Germans reading that paper going, huh, no surface vessels, huh? Hmm, is that where the uh, Germans started concentrating their efforts on U-boats? I don't know. Well, I mean, they certainly had a lot of U-boats in World War One, and they were very effective. And so I can only imagine it's like, look, this, this paid off well for us. And as we go forward, we'll also have more of them in World War Two. Well, they, they did have a lot more in World War II, but it was a fight to get as many as they did, even to get the program restarted. It was, it was a huge fight. But 
they succeeded and then they put out thousands of maybe tens of thousands of u-boats very 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 uh scary so you know this this test was not even remotely close to being conclusive but the test was significant because it put proponents of the battleship against naval aviation on the defensive a guy named rear admiral william a moffett used public relations against Mitchell to make headway towards expansion of the Navy's aircraft carrier program. So that brings us to when everybody started to rearm. So the Royal Navy, the U.S. Navy, and the Imperial Japanese Navy, they extensively upgraded and modernized their World War I-era battleships during the 30s. Among all of these new features were a increased tower height and stability for the optical rangefinder equipment. They put on more armor, especially around, you know, the guns, the turrets, because they wanted to protect against plunging fire and aerial bombing. They also added additional anti-aircraft weapons. Some British ships received a big block structure or big block superstructure nicknamed quote the queen anne's castle this was put on like the queen elizabeth the war spite and they would be used in the new conning towers of the uh, king george v classed fast battleships external bulges were added to improve buoyancy and to counteract the weight increase and actually to provide protection against mines and torpedoes that's cool the japanese they rebuilt all of their battleships and battle cruiser with distinctive pagoda structure i think that's cool i like it when um i'm a fan of architecture and uh yeah. history and culture and things like that and so when that's incorporated even into your military machines i i like that I, 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 I'm, uh, I, I'm glad you like the visual aesthetic of war. Well, no, not, not <laughs> just the machines, not the uh, maiming and killing and destruction aspect. That's quite the opposite, you see. One battleship on the Jap for the Japanese, the Hai'i, received a more modern bridge tower, and that would actually end up influencing the Yamoto class. The bulges were fitted with steel tube arrays to improve both underwater and vertical protection along the waterline. The U.S., they experimented with cage masts and then later tripod masts. But, you know, after the attack on Pearl Harbor, uh, most, uh, some of the most severely damaged boats, such as, you know, the California and West Virginia, they were rebuilt with tower masts radar is then introduced and they it was effective beyond visual range and effective in you know complete darkness and adverse weather conditions and it was introduced uh, to supplement optical fire control yeah but this is only on the u.s side what a what a humongous advantage i mean that's amazing yeah and uh when the attack of Pearl Harbor happened, they actually had picked up those planes on radar. 
Unfortunately, they were told to ignore it because they were expecting a flight of B-52s coming in from the mainland. Ah. And they thought that was it, even though it did not coincide with the right time they were coming in. And I imagine the pings on the radar don't necessarily describe the size or features of the plane. It's just kind of, oh, there's a thing in the air traveling at a speed. Back in this time, yeah, it's uh, pretty much just a a blob on the scope. Yeah. It doesn't give you really too much information about it. It might give you the height and distance, but that's about it. And the bigger the formation, the bigger the blob. It doesn't give you each individual plane. Oh, I see. Yeah. It's just a huge blob. So, yeah. I can understand the confusion. Nowadays, though, we got all sorts of information, but that's, you know, not here or there anymore. Right. So war threatened again in the 30s, and battleship construction did not regain the level of importance it had, you know, before World War I. The, quote, building holiday that was imposed meant that the capacity of dockyards worldwide had actually decreased. And the that means that strategic positions had been changed. That makes sense. I mean, if you kind of purposefully reduce or shut down even a lot of the construction of that capacity. Yeah. You can't expect it to go any other way. It, it, and it takes time to ramp it back up. So in Germany, there was a plan called Plan Z or for our friends across the pond, Plan Z. And this was for naval rearmament. They were, this put the strategy of the submarine at the top, supplemented by battlecruisers and commerce rating. In Britain, the need was for air defenses and convoy escorts to safeguard, you know, the civilians from bombing and starvation. So their rearmament construction plans consisted of five King George V-class boats. I have a question for you. This is an aside, but that's what I tend to do on this podcast. Aside away. All right, perfect. King George V-class. Um, let's assume, Dale, you're royalty, okay? King Dale. Hooray. Now... How would you feel having a class of warship named after you? Would you make sure that that ship is, uh, no pun intended, ship shape and effective and not a laughing stock on the world stage? Or uh, that there's a lot, you know, putting your name on something means something, right? Yeah, I would want to make sure that it wasn't uh, a laughing stock, that it was, you know, the best that could be produced. And I'd also want to make sure it wasn't using any war crimes. Mm. My name's going to be put on it. That's true. It's like, oh, yeah, the village was decimated by a Dale-class battleship. That would be pretty bad. That would be very bad. But do you think that was a strategy by the people that named it to kind of get the, the royalty on board? It's like, oh, I see. You're going to name it after... Yes, well, then let's give you all the funds and everything that you need to make sure that that is an effective uh, vessel. I, I don't think so. At this point in time, the uh, royal family is not uh, 
in the power that it was once was. Parliament is in control. It's it's a it's a democracy at this point in time. I see. Naming, I think naming their boats class their the the classification of the boat like the King George V is more just honoring their history more than anything else. Okay. But you never know. The royal family could have you know kicked in a couple extra pounds. Right. It's like, hey, if you, if you could just make the best one named after us. I mean, the, the, the King George class, they cost over 7 million pounds to build, so. And that's 1930s pounds. Yeah, 1939 pounds. Almost 1940 pounds. Ah, uh, so let's move on to the Mediterranean. Now, in the Mediterranean... The navies that operated there, they stayed committed to battleship warfare. France intended to build six battleships of the Dunkirk and Richelieu class. And the Italians were like, we want four Littorio class ships. Neither of these navies built uh, really any aircraft carriers. Now, the U.S., they were like, no, we're going to spend it on aircraft carriers until the South Dakota class was come up with, was, was you know. Envisioned and developed. Yeah. And so they were like, you know what, let, let, let's go ahead and put, put a few bucks into these two. Okay. The Japanese were also prioritizing aircraft carriers, but they were like, you know what, we still got to put out some battle. So they started put work on three huge Yamamotos, even though that third one was later finished as an aircraft carrier. That is quite a uh, transition in scope when you're building a ship. Yeah, well, they look. I think that what they were looking at was how the war was going. I was like, you know what? That third one, the whole. It's it's just the 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 whole. Let's just put a flat top on that and call it an aircraft carrier. Ooh, that could be cheaper also. I don't know. Hmm. I don't, I don't imagine it would be as uh, stable, though, as a purpose-built aircraft carrier. Agreed, yeah. I think that's a, that's a move of necessity. And uh, they, they had planned a fourth battleship, but they were like, eh, no, they canceled it. When the Spanish Civil War happened, the Spanish Navy had only two small dreadnought battleships, the Espana and the Jamie One. They had them at the, at the naval base of El Forolo. No, El Forol. And they got captured by the Nationalists in 1936. Uh, fun fact, the Jamie One, the crew, remained loyal to the Republic. And so they killed their officers oh. because they supported Franco's attempted and joined the Republican Navy. So that means each side now had a battleship. Now, the Repub Republican Navy lacked experienced officers, mainly because the crew killed them all. So the, the Spanish battleships pretty much just restricted themselves to setting blockades and convoy escort duties. And, you know, some, some shore bombardment. That makes sense. I guess t 
to tangle with a, a peer or even another vessel would take a lot more coordination and ability, knowledge of tactics and uh, seamanship. So, yeah, I, I could see that. Yeah, so they really didn't fight against any other boats. They're like, uh, we're, we're not good enough for that. In 1937, España ran into a mine and sank. And in 1930s, and then the next month, Jamie I was damaged by an airstrike and was run aground. Huh. The, she went back to port to be repaired and was hit again by another airstrike. They were like, you know what? We need to go somewhere a little bit more secure. And so she started getting towed over there. And then while being towed, she suffered a internal explosion. Oh. She lost 300 sailors and went down to the bottom. Yikes. There were several... German and Italian capital ships participating in a non-intervention blockade during the uh, this civil war, and in thirty-seven, two Republican aircraft managed managed to bomb a German pocket battleship, the Dutchland, outside of Ibiza, causing severe damage. The admiral, a guy named Admiral Scheer retaliated two days later by bombing Almeria, causing a huge amount of destruction. And, you know, this uh, Dutch land incident, as it was now called, it meant the end of German and Italian participation in non-intervention. So, World War II? Yeah. We're, we're, we're on the cusp. So, the German battleship, the Schleswig Holstein, I'm sure I pronounced that really badly. This was an obsolete pre-dreadnought. It actually fired the first shots of World War II. Oh. When it bombarded a Polish garrison at Westerplatte. And of course, everybody should know that the final surrender between the Japanese Empire took place aboard the battleship Missouri. If you go visit her in Pearl Harbor, there is a nice plaque on the deck that uh, shows where the signing happened. And that's been there for, boy, back when my dad served on it in the late 80s, early 90s. That's cool to be able to experience uh, just that pivotal piece of history. You can actually be in the same place as, what was it, Admiral Yamamoto? Yeah, and I believe Nimitz. Right. So between these two events, the uh, start of World War II with a battleship and the end of World War II with a battleship, it had become clear that aircraft carriers were the new big bad boys on the block. And, you know, that battleships were now going to be just providing a secondary role. However, battleships did play a major part in engagements in the Atlantic, Pacific, and Mediterranean. In the Atlantic, the Germans used their battleships as independent commerce raiders. But, you know, clashes between battleships were of really no significant importance, strategic importance. The Battle of the Atlantic was fought between destroyers and submarines. 
and the most decisive fleet clashes in the Pacific were determined by aircraft carriers. So I guess since there wasn't battleship on battleship uh, battles as much, or they weren't as strategic, what what would you say were the most influential aspects of the battleship during the war? So are the, is it fire support, or um, I guess how how would you classify that? In your opinion, in my opinion, uh, just as a quick think back to the Pacific with the uh, Japanese island hopping campaign, battleships were instrumental in softening up the defenses on the beaches so the Marines could land. So fire support uh, for the island hopping was very, very important, and they played a big role in that. Uh, that's for the U.S. side. Well, this is the U.S. Navy History Podcast, so I think that is the most appropriate answer you could have given. Oh, good, you noticed. <laughs> so in the first year of the war, the battleships were going to try to defy the predictions of the aircraft-dominate warfare. The, oh, this is going to be Skarnhorst and Gnishnu surprised and sank the aircraft carrier Glorious off of Western Norway in June of 1940. And this engagement marked the only time a fleet carrier was sunk by surface ships. In the attack on Mirs el Kabir, British battleships opened fire on the French battleships in the harbor with their guns, and the fleeing French ships were then pursued by planes from aircraft carriers. I find that odd, given that the French and the British were on the same side, were they not? Or are these, um, I guess, occupied France-operated military vessels, so de facto German vessels? When Germany took over, France was split in two. There was Free France and Vichy France. Right. Free France were, you know, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, Free France was, you know, like Paris and everybody, where it was occupied, but the people were, were free. Vichy France is German-controlled France, and so they fought on the side of the Germans. I see. Okay. It just struck me as odd when you said British firing on French ships. I was like, what? Okay, but that makes sense. The British tried to sink their fleet before the Germans could take over. Ah, well, yes, that makes sense. But, you know, we'll, we'll get into all that during World War yeah, II, yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. sure. Okay. Don't mean, I, well, th this <laughs> is a, a nice preview for that upcoming episode. I'll look behind the glass. So, you know, in the years after the... During the war, there were a lot of different demonstrations of the maturity of the aircraft carrier, you know, as the strategic naval weapon and its effectiveness against these big armored beasts, the battleships. There was a British air attack on the Italian naval base at Toronto, and it sank one Italian battleship and damaged a couple more. The torpedo bombers, call, they called them the swordfishes, they played a crucial role in sinking the German battleship, the Bismarck. Mm. One of those uh, unsinkable guys, if I recall. Mm, yes. And of course, December 7th, 1941, Japan launched the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And during this attack, they used aircraft to sink five of the eight U.S. battleships. 
Oof. And all of them were damaged in in uh, some sort. Now, luckily, though, all three American carriers were out at sea. So that saved our air power. The sinking of the British battleship the Prince of Wales and the battlecruiser Repulse. This showed everybody how they how much the battleship was vulnerable while at sea when you don't have sufficient air cover. Earlier in the episode, you mentioned they even retrofitted the battleships with uh, anti-air defenses. So even with those defenses, it doesn't sound like, uh, or it sounds like rather, they could be overwhelmed by aircraft pretty easily. Depends on the amount of aircraft. Depends on the experience and professional uh, professionality of the anti-aircraft gunnery crews. That's true. I mean, you can have... You can have 150 anti-aircraft guns on a boat, but if you can't hit the broadside of a barn, yeah, it's not going to matter. The sinking of the Prince of Wales and the Repulse, this pretty much settled the argument that Mitchell began in 1921. So, because the, the, these war, these boats were on their way to attack a Japanese amphibious force that had invaded Malay. And they were caught by Japanese land-based bombers and torpedo bombers. So he's like, love that land, based aircraft. (laughs) Right. So uh, most of the crucial battles in the Pacific, you know, like Coral Sea and Midway, battleships were pretty much either absent or overshadowed as, you know, carriers just launched wave after wave after wave after wave stop me anytime after wave after wave okay that's enough of aircraft and you know these aircraft had ranges of hundreds of miles oh that's right so uh, as i as i answered your question earlier in the pacific battleships primarily performed shore bombardment in support of the amphibious landings and they also provided anti-aircraft defense as escort for the uh, carriers. Well, that makes sense. So you remember the uh, Yamato class, which were the largest battleships ever constructed? Yes. They carried a main battery of nine 18-inch guns. Nine of them. Ooh. They were never given a chance to show their potential in decisive battleship action. And, you know, that was figured quite heavily into the Japanese pre-war planning. So the last battleship confront, uh, confrontation in history. Would you like to know about that? I would love to, Dale. Please tell me more. Okay, it was the Battle of Surago Strait, October 25th, 1944. There was between a numerically and technologically superior American battleship group destroying a Japanese battleship group by gunfire after it had already been devastated by destroyer torpedo attacks. All but one of the American battleships had previously been sunk during the attack of Pearl Harbor, and they'd been raised and repaired. Mississippi actually fired the last major salvo of this battle. Good on you, Mississippi, and to bring those ships back from the grave, the watery depths, to exact their own vengeance. Mm -hmm. That's pretty exciting. So in April of 1945, 
when the battle for Okinawa was happening, the most powerful battleship in the world, the Yamamoto, was sent out on a suicide mission against the massive U.S. force and was overwhelmingly sunk by aircraft from an aircraft carrier, nearly losing all hands. That's, that's tragic. And then after that, the remaining Japanese fleet was destroyed by the U.S. Naval Air Force. So I know I don't want to dive too much into World War II specifically, but there was, I'm going to do a little bit now anyway, uh, Army Air Corps was what it was. That was instead of the Air Force, it was the Army Air Corps. But there were all the planes on a naval carrier. Were they under Army or? Nope. So they were a very distinct, uh, I guess, command structure under the Navy. Yeah, they're, they're Navy. Naval av- they are Naval air Aviators. Okay. They ha- always have been. Interesting. I didn't, I didn't know that differentiation existed that far back. So that's yeah, f- helpful to know. F- from the very beginning to now, they're all Naval Aviators. Uh, there are, nowadays at least, there are Marine Air Wings that do come on board. They mainly operate helos off of aircraft carriers. Uh, There has been one time in history that army bombers were launched off of an aircraft carrier. Oh, I know what you're talking about, but we'll save that for the World War II one. Oh, everybody should know about the Doolittle Raid. Oh. If not, you'll find out about it later. (laughs) Yes. So that brings us to the Cold War. So after... World War II, a number of different navies retained what battleships were left. But, you know, they're no longer strategically dominant in the military asset ring because it became apparent that they were no longer worth the considerable cost of construction and maintenance. And so that meant only one new battleship was commissioned after World War II. That was the HMS Vanguard. So the British were like, we still want our battleships, but we're only paying for one more. I could see that. They'd want to make the last one. I mean, I mean, during the war, they, they demonstrated that battleship on battleship engagements were over. It, it was pretty much an exception, not the rule anymore. Well, you have to figure they had quite an empire to uh, bombard with uh, a battleship. So I think that was their thinking. Well, also the uh, growing role of aircraft, because, you know, their ranges are only becoming longer and longer. That's true. Making, yeah, make, making the, the, the heavy caliber guns n- not effective anymore. Yeah, I guess all that uh, ordnance could be delivered via aircraft, so. Right, you got, you got aircraft that could travel thousand, a thousand miles now. The battleship will never be able to bring the aircraft carrier to bear under her guns. So I have a question regarding battleships. One thing I was anticipating, you're saying during the Cold War, that the Soviet Navy would have built some battleships because I don't think they had um, a strong naval presence during World War II. Uh, And so after that, they would have built up. But maybe based on this conversation we're having now, they would have prioritized different vessels. Do you think that's accurate? Uh, the Soviets, they 
at least now they only have one aircraft carrier it is a pos uh but mainly i think after world war ii they would have concentrated on battle cruisers destroyers maybe submarines yeah submarines definitely they have submarines but yeah when you get to the end of a war and it's obsolete why build what's obsolete you're right absolutely so the armor of the battleship was equally just out the window now because of nuclear attack with on tactical missiles the soviets we were just talking you just asked about them yeah were mounting them on destroyers and in submarines wow so by the end of the 1950s pretty much the smaller vessels like destroyers were pretty much outdoing the battleships i could see that i mean just they they could eliminate them from outside of the battleship's guns wow and outrun them i assume they were much lighter and zippier than your standard battleship yeah they were definitely much more maneuverable so the remaining battleships they met a number of different ends the uss Arkansas and Nagoto were sunk during the testing of nuclear weapons, actually, in Operation Crossroads in 1946. Both of them proved resistant to nuclear airbursts, but were vulnerable to underwater explosions. We had a whole discussion about those during the torpedoes. That's right. The Italian battleship was actually taken by the Soviets as reparations. And they renamed it and was sunk by a leftover German mine in the Black Sea in 1955. Oh, yeah. World War II mines are still washing ashore. Whoa, really? Yep. It's a gift that keeps on giving, unfortunately. Yeah. There were two Andrea Doria-class ships scrapped in '56. The French scrapped their Lorraine in 54 and the Richard Lou in 68 and the Jean Bart in 70. The UK scrapped their four King George V class ships in 57 with the Vanguard following in 60. All the other surviving battleships had been sold or broken up by 1949. The Soviets scrapped the Marat in 53 and the something I'm not even going to try to pronounce in 57. <laughs> and the, yeah, I'm not pronouncing that one either in 42. In 56 and 57, Brazil had one that was scrapped in 53 or had two. One of them was scrapped in 53. And one sank during a storm in the Atlantic to be scrapped in 51. Argentina kept two of their battleships until 56. And Chile kept their battleship until 59. Turkey had a battle cruiser and scrapped her in 76. After Germany was like, we don't want to buy, her, buy it back. Okay. Yeah, it sounds yet a, a lot of uh, shedding of what you called obsolete 
vessels just like this this just doesn't make sense to main the maintenance cost alone and then all the men required to to pilot the vessel that would be enormous maintenance cost operation cost yeah that's yeah. uh it gets much more expensive the older it gets because parts get harder to find munitions are you know becoming not being uh manufactured in the quantities that they were once before so uh so that brings us to sweden they had several small coastal defense battleships the hswms gustav the fifth survived until 1970 so that's cool go sweden yeah uh, the Soviets scrapped four incomplete battleships in the 50s and plans to build a number of Stalingrad battle cruisers were abandoned when Joseph Stalin died in 53. The three old German battleships, the Schlagenwig Holstein, the Schliegschen, and Hessen. I'm sure I butchered that. It's fine. I, um... People will. People are forgiving. I found. Eh, I hope so. <laughs> they they all pretty much met the same end. They were taken over by the Soviet Union, renamed, and then scrapped in 1960. Uh, that was what the Hessen's fate was. The uh, Schlesien-Holstein was used as a target ship until 1960. And the Sleason was as well, but she ended up being broken up in 52. So the U.S., the Iowa-class battleships actually gained a new lease in life in the Navy as fire support ships. Radar and computer-controlled gunfire could be aimed with pinpoint accuracy on a target. So the U.S. then recommissioned all four Iowa-class battleships for the Korean War and the New Jersey for the Vietnam War. These were primarily used as shore bombardment. The New Jersey fired nearly 6,000 rounds of 16-inch shells and over 14,000 rounds of 5-inch shells. That's amazing. She fired more rounds against targets in Vietnam than she had fired in the Second World War. So when uh, Navy Secretary John F. Lehman wanted to build his 600-ship Navy in the 80s, and in response to the commissioning of the Kirov by the Soviet Union, which was, which is a, uh, which is or was? I'm guessing was. Yeah. I, I, hold on. Okay, sorry, well, I'm just... I'm a gambling man, so there we are. Let's see. Ah. Let's see if I win. Yeah, no, she's uh laid up to be scrapped right now. Okay. But she was a nuclear-powered guided missile cruiser. Ooh. So the US was like, I'll see your nuclear-powered cruiser and recommissioned for all four Iowa class battleships again. And I'll raise you four battleships. That's right. <laughs> Uh, on a number of occasions, battleships were support ships and carrier battle groups, but they did lead their own battle groups as well. They were modernized to carry Tomahawk missiles, with uh, the New Jersey seeing uh, action 
while bombarding Lebanon in 83, and Missouri and Wisconsin in 84 firing their 16-inch guns during Operation Desert Storm in 1991. That is when my dad was serving on board her. Nice. Wisconsin served as the TLAM strike commander for the Persian Gulf, directing the sequence of launches that marked the opening of Desert Storm, firing a total of 24 tomahawks during the first two days. The primary threat to the battleships were Iraqi shore-based surface-to-surface missiles. Missouri was targeted by two Iraqi Silkworm missiles, with one missing and another being intercepted by a British destroyer, the HMS Gloucester. There's actually video you can find on YouTube inside the uh, Missouri's fire control station, I think it is, of those those missiles being launched at them. I bet that was somewhat terrifying. Uh, It's not fun. (laughs) (laughs) So... After Indiana was uh, decommissioned and stricken from the record in 62, these four battleships were the only ones in commission or in reserved anywhere in the world. Wow. There was a very long, very big debate when the four boats were to be finally decommissioned in the early 90s. The Iowa and the Wisconsin were maintained to a standard where they could be rapidly returned to surface as fire support vessels pending, you know, development of a superior fire support vessel. I see. Yeah. So just thinking of the technological progression of naval craft, and you've got the battleship and... It serves a unique purpose, and aircraft carriers don't quite do it, and submarines don't do it. Destroyers kind of can with uh, the missile-mounted uh, attacks, but not not quite the same. But what what would you say would be the 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 next evolution of that style of capital ship? Would it be a missile cruiser? Well, uh, naval warfare is called is done by aircraft and missiles now. Almost just exclusively practically? Pretty much. Some destroyers still have like five inch guns on their bows, but good luck seeing them uh, in action. Hmm. So, yeah, okay. Well, then that would make sense. Yeah. Didn't mean to jump in. I just was curious where it was going or where we are now. Missiles are much more accurate than projectiles. Uh, let's see. The last two battleships were stricken from the Naval Register in 2006. Uh, the military balance in Russian foreign military review stated that the U.S. listed one battleship in the reserve in 2010. That's the Naval Inactive Fleet Reserved Second Term. The Naval balance states that the U.S. Navy listed no battleships in the reserved four years later in 2014. So when these last two battleships were stricken from the Naval Registry, that means no battleships remain in service or in reserve anywhere in the world. There are a number of preserved as museum ships, either, you know, on the water or in dry dock. The U.S. has eight battleships on display, the Massachusetts, the North Carolina, Alabama, Iowa, New Jersey, Missouri, Wisconsin, and Texas. Uh... Missouri and New Jersey are museums at Pearl Harbor and Camden, New Jersey, respectively. 
Iowa is on display as an educational attraction at the Los Angeles waterfront in San Pedro, California. Wisconsin is a museum ship in Norfolk, Virginia. Massachusetts is unique as having the distinction of never having lost a man during her service. Wow. And she is on display at Battleship Cove Naval Museum in Fall River, Massachusetts. Texas, which is actually the first battleship turned into a museum, is normally on display at the San Jacinto Battleground Historic State Historic Site near Houston, but she is actually right now in Galveston dry docked being repaired. And we don't, I'm not exactly sure where she's going afterwards. She's not going back to Houston from what I hear. And as we discussed in the last episode on battleships, that was the, of all of them, that's the only World War I battleship that you can visit, correct? Right. I believe so. We'd have to go back and listen to our meander again. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're, we're not going to do it a second time, I right, promise. Right, right, guys. right, right. Uh, North Carolina is on display in Wilmington, North Carolina. Alabama is in Mobile, Alabama. And, of course, Arizona is in Pearl Harbor, and it is designated as a historical landmark and national grave site. You can also go see her. There is a memorial built over her, and you can go see her right now. The Wreck of the Utah also sank during the attack is also a historic landmark, but it's not as uh, built up. Or not as memorialized as the Arizona. So let's just get into the strategy and doctrine of the battleships really quickly. I I know we're 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 uh, we're, we're we're bumping up on time here. You're doing great. This is the a great way to encapsulate what the battleship is all about. So they were the embodiment of sea power back back in their day. Uh for a naval officer named Alfred Thayer Mahan and all the guys that followed him, you know, his stance was a strong navy was vital to the success of a nation because control of the seas was vital for the protection of force on land and in overseas. So his theory proposed in The Influence of Sea Power Upon History dictated the role of the battleship was to sweep the enemy from the seas while the work of escorting, blockading, and raiding might be done by, you know, cruisers, destroyers, you know, smaller vessels. The presence of the battleship was a potential threat to any convoy escorted by vessels other than capital ships. So the concept of this potential threat can be further generalized to the mere existence of a powerful fleet tying the opposite fleet down. So just knowing that they're out there, we're going to make the smaller fleets, you know, say, nope, we're, we're not going to try. Right. So this concept became known as the fleet in being. It's an idle but mighty fleet forcing others to spend time, resources, and effort to guard against it. He went on to say that victory could only be achieved by engagements between battleships, which became known as the decisive battle doctrine in some navies while targeting merchant ships could never succeed that was wrong right i mean you're right 
that it was wrong. <laughs> I don't want to you know confuse the listener. Yeah, it, it was proven wrong. <laughs> now, Manhan was highly influential in naval and political circles throughout the age of the battleship, calling for a large fleet of the most powerful battleships possible. His work developed in the 1880s, and by the end of the 1890s, he had acquired a lot of international influence on naval strategy. And it was adopted by many major navies, notably British, American, German, and Japanese. The strength of his opinion was important in the development of the battleship's arm race and equally important in the agreement of the powers to limit battleship numbers in the interwar eras. The, quote, fleet and being suggested battleships could simply, by their existence, tie down superior enemy resources. Yeah. This was believed to be able to tip the balance of a conflict without even firing a shot. So tactics. So while the role of the battleships in both world wars reflected the Manhattanian doctrine, as it became known, the details of battleship deployments were a bit more complex. So unlike ships of the lines, the battleships of the late 18th and 19th centuries had a significant vulnerability. And that was to torpedoes and mines. Yes. And the could be used by small, inexpensive craft. So the Juan Ecole doctrine of the 1870s and 1880s recommended placing torpedo boats alongside the battleships. These would hide behind the larger ships until, you know, gun smoke obscured visibility enough for them to dart out and fire their torpedoes. So while this tactic was, you know, less effective when, you know, smokeless propellant was developed. Oh, yes. The threat for of more capable torpedo craft remained. These later, this later included the submarines as well. By the 1890s, the Royal Navy had developed the first destroyers, which were initially designed to intercept and drive off any attacking torpedo boats. But during the First World War, battleships were rarely deployed without a protective screen of destroyers. So do battleship doctrine emph emphasized the concentration of the battle group. In order for this concentrated force to be able to bring its power to bear on any opponent, battleships needed some means of locating enemy ships beyond the horizon. This was provided by scouting forces. So at various stages, battle cruisers, cruisers, destroyers, and airships, submarines, and aircraft were all used. With you know, when the development of radio, direction finding, and traffic analysis came into play. That meant that even shore stations and were able to join the battle group. So for most of their history, battleships operated surrounded by squadrons of destroyers and cruisers. The North Sea campaign of the First World War shows us how, despite this support, the threat of mines and torpedo attacks and the failure to integrate or appreciate the capabilities of new technologies seriously inhibited the operations of the Royal Navy Grand Fleet, which was the greatest battleship fleet during the time. Now, including to 
including, you know, just their physical impact of being there. They also had a psychological and diplomatic impact. They were actually similar to, you know, nuclear weapons possession today. You know, when that, they, yeah. They, oh, yeah, the ownership of battleships served to enhance the nation's force projection. So even during the Cold War, the psychological impact of a battleship was significant. For example, in 1946, the USS Missouri was dispatched to deliver the remains of a ambassador from Turkey. And her presence in the Turkish and Greek waters saved off a possible Soviet thrust into the Balkan region. In, uh, in 1983, when a militia in Laban's Sheriff Mountains fired upon a U.S. Marine peacekeepers, the arrival of the New Jersey stopped the firing on them. And then later, the militia leaders were found and targeted by the New Jersey and blown to kingdom come. <laughs> so lastly, the ba battleships were the largest and most complex boats out there. And so they were the most expensive warships of their time. So that means that the value of the investment in the battleship had always been a hot topic. Yeah. A French politician wrote in 1879, quote, the construction of battleships is so costly, their effectiveness so uncertain and of such duration that the enterprise of creating an armored fleet seems to leave fruitless the, the perseverance of a people. His, uh, his school of thought of the 1870s and 1880s sought, you know, alternatives to the what could very well be a crippling expense of the uh, conventional battle fleet. He proposed that what would nowadays be termed as sea denial based on fast long range cruisers. Oh, I see. For, yeah, for commerce raiding and torpedo boat flotillas to attack enemy ships attempting to blockade, you know, their, their French ports. Now, these ideas, of course, were ahead of their time. Because once uh, a, a military has something they like, they want to keep it. Uh, so it wasn't until the 20th century that uh, when efficient mines, torpedoes, and submarines, and aircrafts, and aircraft were available, that uh, his ideas were starting to come to light. I think as a, the landscape transformed, it's, um, I, I could see that idea being pushed more and more, and battleships just kind of being deprioritized more and more yeah so that my friend is battleships well that was a fun ride thanks captain dale so that is the first time that we have covered a entire class of ship uh let us know if you like it and we could do it again maybe you know we'll do a, a aircraft carriers that's going to be a huge one or destroyers, or, you know, what, whatever. Tugboats. Naval tugboats. They are useful <laughs> and helpful. So we are teamed up with HeroCards.us, where we honor one of our fallen angels after every episode. So today we are going to honor hospital corpsman, second class, Michael Richard Kempel. He is from Chuga Falls, Ohio. 
He was assigned to Company M, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, 1st Marine Division. He received the Silver Star and Purple Heart. His date of sacrifice was August 27th, 1970, killed in action in Kang Nam Province, Republic of Vietnam. He was 22 years old. So Michael was born July 22nd, 1948, and raised in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio, just north of Akron. He was the second of five children born to Dick and Peg Kempel, and he attended Immaculate Heart of Mary Catholic Church and School. After graduating from Archbishop Hoban High School of Akron in 1966, he went to the University of Akron and worked for the energy company Babcock and Wilcox in nearby Baberton, Ohio. As a young boy, he was a paper boy for the Akron Beacon Journal and an Eagle Scout. And according to his younger brother, Dennis, quote, as, an, as a young adult, his passion was cars. He was a motorhead grease monkey and a mechanic. He spent many hours rebuilding an early model Corvair he sold to purchase a cherry red 1964 Ford Galaxy 500. He cleaned and polished every inch of that car from the rims to the engine, all while listening to Dick Dale and the Ventures. Drag racing was a part of Mike's passion for cars. In 1968, when the country was mired in the Vietnam War and divided over whether America should remain involved, Kempel enlisted in the United States Navy. His father told the Akron Beacon Journal that Kempel decided to enlist so he could choose which branch of the military he'd serve in, a choice he wouldn't have if he were drafted. Makes sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. If I knew if the draft was on and I knew that there was no way I wasn't getting drafted, I'm going to join the branch I want to go to. Precisely, yes. Kempel was trained as a U.S. Navy hospital corpsman assigned to Company M, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, 1st Marine Division, deployed in South Vietnam. Navy hospital corpsmen are trained to provide basic medical treatment. Because the Marine Corps doesn't have its own medical branch, Navy corpsmen serve with the Marine Divisions. HM2 Kempel's commanding officer, 1st Lieutenant Ranson J. Pelt, explained, quote, Corpsmen are very special to us Marines. They took a lot of kidding and good-natured harassment from the Marines. But we all thought of these corpsmen as fellow Marines. We knew that under enemy fire, these corpsmen would get us to the provided medical aid. In March of 1969, President Richard M. Nixon, his administration launched Operation Menu with the secret body of communist bases and supply zones located outside of Vietnam in neighboring Cambodia. The move was highly controversial to an already divided, war-weary American people. And as the commander-in-chief of the military, the limits of a president's power to expand a war without the prior approval of Congress were tested. When the moves into officially neutral Cambodia produced large caches of captured enemy arms, H.M. 2 Kempel wrote a letter to President Nixon, quote, It would appear that we of the ground troops are the only ones who fully realize the meaningful importance of your move. If they, critics, could see them, the captured arms, they would be able to see your reasons behind a most critical decision. Nixon's personal letter in response was a prized possession of Michael Kempel and his family. The president wrote, quote, I have received the very thoughtful letter in which you and eight of your colleagues expressed support for my recent actions to enhance the safety of American servicemen and move towards the peace we all seek. I am grateful for the generous statements that prompted your letter, and I very much appreciate your comments. On August 27, 1970, 
HM2 Kempel's Company M was on patrol in Vietnam's Kang Nam province, where they unwittingly moved into an enemy minefield. The Point Marine stepped on a mine and was critically wounded. Other Marines were also seriously wounded in the explosion. Enemy sniper fire erupted on the platoon from a nearby tree line. Despite the gunfire and the likelihood of more landmines, HM2 Kempel ran to the front of the platoon to provide medical aid to fallen Marines. As he came close to the Point Marine, he stepped on a second mine and was critically wounded himself. He ignored his own wounds and tended to the fallen Marine, still under sniper fire. At age 22, HM2 Michael Kempel would not survive his wound. Within days of the action, Kempel's commanding officer, First Lieutenant Pelt, nominated him for the Silver Star. Somehow, the paperwork was lost, requiring another nomination decades later. 33 years after HM2 Kempel's courage and sacrifice, he was finally recognized and the Silver Star Medal was presented to his family. The citation reads, The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Silver Star posthumously to Hospital Corpsman 2nd Class Michael Richard Kempel, Naval Serial Number 2429248, United States Navy, for, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity in action while serving as a corpsman with Company M, 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, 1st Marine Division, in connection with operations against insurgent communist forces in the Republic of Vietnam on 27 August 1970. Baby Officer Kimball was a member of Company M, patrolling just north of Liberty Bridge in Kang, in Kang Nam Province, Republic of Vietnam, when his platoon unknowingly entered an enemy minefield. The Point Marine stepped on a hidden mine. The resulting explosion critically wounded the Point Marine and seriously wounded several other Marines. With total disregard for his safety, knowing there were other mines in the vicinity, Petty Officer Campbell moved to the front of the platoon to provide aid to the wounded Marine. As he neared the seriously wounded Point Marine, Hospital Corpsman 2nd Class Campbell stepped on another hidden mine, suffering multiple critical wounds from the explosion. Ignoring his wounds, Petty Officer Campbell crawled to the Point Marine and attempted to render medical aid until he succumbed to his wounds. His resolute effort throughout the engagement was a source of inspiration to all who observed him. By his outstanding professional skill, fortitude in the face of enemy fire, and unfaltering dedication to duty, Hospital Corpsman 2nd Class Kimball's action reflect the highest credit upon himself and the United States Naval Service. HM2 Michael R. Kimball was raised to rest in his hometown, Chayuga Falls, Ohio. He is honored on the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C., with his name inscribed on panel 07W, line 17. HM2 Michael R. Kempel. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So this is going to be a longer episode, but you know what? It's going to happen sometimes. Yeah. So, Christoph, would you like to take us out? Sure thing. Thanks, Dale. Um, thanks for listening, number one. Uh, we're very happy that you're here listening to us. Uh, if you want to contact us, if for feedback or requests, recommendations, what have you, uh, our email address is usnavyhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can uh, find us on Twitter at usnhistorypod, and if you want to get even more interactive, you can join our Discord, which you can find in the show notes. Uh, so please contact us if you want. Uh, listen on YouTube, subscribe, and then also make sure you rate us because that helps us. And it also lets us know how you feel about what we're doing. So thanks. 
And it introduces other people to the show as well. Absolutely. So I think I covered everything, so if there's anything I missed, I understand there will be a flogging. Oh, there's always a flogging. Well, it doesn't have to be. It's, you're... Okay. But, but you, you seem to like the floggings. Well, I just... I put up a brave face. That's... That's what I do. Oh. Well, with that, guys, we're going to wish you a fair winds and following sea. Goodbye. Bye-bye. U.S. Naval History Podcast, departing.